And welcome back to the KI Prime podcast. My name is Alina Jenkins. And in this episode, I'm speaking to Professor Paul Tiffin. Paul is Professor of Health Services and Workforce Research at the University of York and Hull York Medical School and an honorary consultant adolescent psychiatrist. Paul is a quantitative methodologist seeking to link individual psychological characteristics and outcomes of interest to make predictions about future performance. And Paul's academic work is focused on on eliciting and measuring psychological phenomena and linking these to outcomes. Paul, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Alina. My first question will be really about your your general area of research and what brings you here to Stockholm. Well, I was nominated by John Nossini, who had spent a couple of weeks working with in Philadelphia as part of a fellowship. And I was very surprised to be nominated and even more surprised to be awarded the fellowship at Vermonas because a lot of my work um, has been around workforce uh, as well as mental health services research, but I don't always think of myself as a medical education researcher. I don't get into all the teaching and educational side too much. Um, so it's, it was certainly a, a very pleasant surprise to be nominated and a great honor to be here and at the Karolinski Institute. Uh, and I, I guess it's around my work mostly focused on selection and regulation of the medical and healthcare workforce. That was the basis I was nominated on, I'm suspecting. So yeah, that's like what brings me here, I guess. Yeah. So, so let's expand more around this sort of workforce selection. I know it's particularly important in the UK, but does this also have wider implications globally as well? Yes. If you, you know, here, of course, I, I'm, I'm the only UK uh, fellow here this time and talking to my uh, fellows from Canada, other parts of North America and beyond, everybody's facing a global workforce crisis in healthcare. And there are particular areas where it's acute and particularly in my area, for example, mental health services, we've had long running shortages of not just uh, psychiatrists, or medically qualified um, mental health workers, but also uh, mental health nurses. And that's a global issue. Uh, I haven't spoken to anyone recently who says that they've got more than enough psychiatrists, put it that way. So it is a, it's a global phenomenon. And so some specialties that are more popular will have competitive interviews and recruit. Other ones uh, that are less popular, shall we say, with medical graduates will struggle. And that seems to be a global thing. But I think in the UK, the concern is the list of specialties with shortages is growing. So pediatrics, uh, A&E, internal medicine, and also even some branches of surgery that never had problems recruiting are all sometimes struggling to recruit enough doctors. So this is this is certainly a global phenomenon. Yeah. Why, why do you think these challenges are happening? Have you sort of managed to pinpoint some of the areas that where, where they are struggling and the reasons behind it? Well, uh, the labour market and the medical labour market is like any other market. Uh, once people are qualified particularly from so-called developed countries, the West or the global North, there is a, a certain amount of choice people have. And so people will often gravitate towards specialties that they see as more high esteem, um, ones that maybe there's 
if they're more interested, motivated by economic factors, maybe ones where there's more scope for private practice and also what interests them. And I, I think particularly for psychiatry, because we select people based on usually three sciences, usually chemistry, physics, biology, sometimes, you know, and a certain level of mathematics is required. Technically, a lot of medical schools will accept psychology, but it's not a commonly held qualification. So therefore, people are sort of almost selected out who might be interested in psychological medicine. But on the other hand, we had very large numbers of people wanting to become clinical psychologists. But almost our selection approach, if you like, weeds out people who might gravitate towards psychological medicine. And that's certainly why I think one of the reasons we have a shortage of psychiatrists. But I think in other areas such as pediatrics or accident emergency, I think certainly lifestyle factors are shown to play a part in how attractive it is in terms of hours and difficulties in achieving work-life balance. So there's a whole range of factors that have been described that can act as attractors or if you like repellents from certain choices, but certainly lifestyle and the sort of nature of the work play play strong roles in those choices. And, and how is how is your research or how are you hoping that your research might help to overcome some of these challenges? Well, a lot of my research in the area of workforce has been about medical, particularly medical selection. And a lot of it was about validating the measures we're already using. So for example, in 2006, in the UK, we many of the medical schools, in fact, most of the medical schools introduced what was known as the, at the time, the UK Clinical Aptitude Test, now called the University Clinical Aptitude Test. And that was basically, if you like, a cognitive test or IQ test, very crudely, which was used to help select, help medical schools select medical students. And so a lot of my initial work back in, I reckon it was around 2010, 2011, was finding some evidence to show that these things predicted anything useful because they were very widely implemented. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of evidence that they predicted anything useful in terms of academic achievement or even looking forward whether these people were likely to be good in practice. So that was in my earlier work. But since then, I've become more interested in, in the last five years or so in trying to get to qualities beyond what we might call academic or intellectual ability towards these things that we know really matter in healthcare, especially in terms of the patient-doctor relationship, what might be crudely called emotional intelligence or socio-emotional intelligence, which is obviously much, much harder to measure, particularly in what we call a high-stakes setting, where there's a lot to gain or lose at those sort of, uh, those sort of situations. And so I've been interested in trying to find ways, uh, first of all, validating the tests we do use for that that mostly mostly for situation situation judgment tests we call them where people are presented with different workplace scenarios and have to respond in a way that they show they know what they should be doing or what, what they would, would do in that situation and by getting better measures of these if you like non-academic non-intellectual qualities we hope to give medical schools the confidence to put more weight on these things as well as intellectual ability so that we can diversify the workforce. Of course, we, we need, you know, bright doctors. That's that nobody's going to argue with that. But a lot of the jobs that need to be done out there are about people facing work, which you might describe as emotional labor. So it's really working with people at a very human level. For example, in a general practice consultation in the UK, as many other places, 
doctors have very little time to talk. And they may have to have very good communication skills in order to flush out what the patient's really concerned about. And they have very little time to do that. So these so-called softer skills are really important. And we know that once you allow for a certain amount of, if you like, cognitive ability or, or what we might call traditionally intelligence, it's really those skills that often matter in these very patient-facing or interpersonal type jobs and how people perform in them. Coming from um, from the background that you do in, in psychiatry and in mental health, and you, you mentioned there about increasing the diversity of the workforce. Is there some consideration now around neurodiversity as well and any support um, or understanding that you can give to people who are neurodiverse? Uh, well, that's currently a very under-researched area. Uh, we suspect, and we've never shown this, but when we give people situational judgment tests, which ask people to answer about usually either written or video displayed social situations, it might be that the doctors who do very poorly, the doctors or medical students who do very poorly on those tests might have undiagnosed neurodevelopmental conditions such as autism spectrum. But we don't know that. That's certainly an area that, that probably needs researching. Certainly there are doctors who qualify who whether they've been diagnosed before, but quite often diagnosed in adulthood, may have neurodevelopmental issues. And certainly our Royal College has recently formed uh, a group for, for doctors uh, who identify as neurodiverse. But at the moment, there's not. I'm not aware of a lot of support from employers. I mean, doctors with neurodiversity issues often have a lot to offer. For example, they may have ability to focus uh, on things that other people might not hold their attention, such as pathology or things like that, um, or lab-based things. But also a lot of doctors who identify as neurodiverse do work in um, emotional labor type settings such as psychiatry, uh, but often uh, mask or find ways of learning the communication social skills that enable them to function effectively. And it's it's wrong to assume that just because, say, somebody has a diagnosis or label of an autism spectrum condition, that they're not able to to, to work effectively in that way. And, and people, especially those who are very uh, high on, a, say, an IQ test, often, and particularly women, are very good at masking those things. But at the moment, there there isn't much research in this area I'm aware of. And I'm not aware of a lot of specific support yeah. uh, for doctors who may be neurodiverse. I know one of your other areas of research, Paul, is around predictive modelling and the approaches offered by machine learning. So I wondered if you could expand a bit more on that for us. Well, yes, I've been interested in machine learning for some years. Uh, mostly I've been uh, applying it around mental health issues. And um, we have tried to use some machine learning algorithms um, with some selection data Interestingly, it seemed to work better with a data set uh, we, we worked with from Australia because there the number of choices of medical schools seemed more uh, constrained and it was more predictable who who chose to accept offers in, in, in certain medical schools, whereas in the UK it's more complicated and our machine prediction, learning prediction didn't seem to work terribly well. I, there's a lot of interest in using machine learning and artificial intelligence in more general to enhance selection methods. So I know there's a lot of interest in something I've been talking about and putting uh, funding bids in for to look at whether we could automate the scoring and rating of interviews so during the pandemic, obviously, a lot of face-to-face -face interviews were suspended. So there has been interest in people trying out what we might call desynchronous 
online interviews where people might go online and record an interview. Mm-hmm. And that can now be automatically transcribed and scored. Now, uh, I've written uh, about this uh, at times more from a mental health perspective, uh, m- mental health research perspective. But um, there are lots of limitations and risks with artificial intelligence and machine learning that people are becoming more aware of. For example, there is the potential to exaggerate human bias and discrimination because obviously if you train a a machine on human judgment, if that human judgment is biased in some way, then a machine might well exaggerate rather than get rid of that. So there's more interest in what we call interpretable models where you can actually understand how a machine to some extent, made its decisions. So some some transparency to the process, because a lot of machine learning models have traditionally been seen as so-called black boxes. They come out with an answer or a prediction, but you're not quite sure how the machine got there. So there's certainly a lot of potential there, uh, particularly around the area of selection and even staff development. But there's also a lot of limitations and risks that people have to be aware of if they're going to use these methods, and they should, should validate them before they start rolling them out in high stakes tests, certainly. Yeah. Do, do you think that this, this might be the way forward? As you said, there's still a number of, of, uh, of issues that need addressing and we need to think about it, you know, quite a lot. But do you think it might have broader, better implications in the future? Yes, definitely. Because we, in certainly in medicine and some of the other health professions, we get a very high number of candidates for every place applying. And traditionally, Medical schools find it easiest just to have a, an easy, you know, set an easy bar or threshold to discard a large number of candidates without interviewing them. That's often on actual or predicted uh, secondary or, or in America high school grades mm-hmm. or how they perform on these cognitive, mostly kind of IQ test type assessments. And if we could come up with a way that could be scaled and delivered digitally of automatically scoring say, an interview or some kind of situational judgment test, which was able to fairly accurately measure some of these abilities and personality traits, which are important to, in the future, delivering very patient or person-centered care, then that would give medical schools more confidence Mm. to put more weight on some of these things rather than relying excessively just on academic qualities. And if we could do that, it's likely to lead to a more diverse workforce. Yes, we need professors in neurology, but we also need people who would enjoy working in general practice in a coastal town or something. Mm-hmm. And so we need, uh, uh, we don't need cookie cutter doctors churned out of medical schools at the other end. We need a diversity of doctors graduating who can be mapped on to the very real workforce needs out there and the needs of the populations they serve. And actually, if we come up with better scalable ways of evaluating these important personal qualities, then that could really change the way we select future doctors as well as other healthcare professionals. And some of that works ongoing, but so far, I'm not aware of any validated automated system that will take an interview, transcribe it and say, yes, this person's a three, this person's a one or, or so on. Mm-hmm. We're not quite yet, there yet, but there have been some very significant advances in artificial intelligence and particularly in the area of natural language processing, whereby machines can understand spoken and written language uh, in the last four or five years that actually start to make these things feasible. But as I said before, it's important that these things are transparent and we know what the machine's doing to some extent so that we don't exacerbate the problem rather than address it. 
Mm. Out of the two areas that we've spoken about, Paul, so we were talking about this, this AI and the approach and modeling technology, but also about your work around the health workforce. Are, are they balanced for you, the, both these areas of research, or is there one that you think you might end up focusing on more in the near future? Well, I've kind of flip-flopped a bit over the years between sort of mental health research, emphasizing that, and the clinical education research started off as a bit of a side hustle for me in around 2010. <laughs> and then it became the main thing. And I got a, a National Institute for Healthcare Research Fellowship just to mainly focus on selection regulation of the medical workforce. So I focused on that for five or six years. I'm doing a bit more mental health stuff again now. But I, I think the thread that I've kept going in my clinical education research has been always about how can we measure accurately these individual differences between people applying for the health professions in a way that then we can predict how they're going to perform clinically, but also professionally. And some of my work has been about predicting those people who end up with professionalism problems and what we call in England fitness to practice issues, both as medical students, but also as qualified doctors. There's not many doctors who end up in trouble, but they do cause a disproportionate impact both on patients, on services, and actually the doctors themselves who go through these fitness to practice processes. Um, but I, the way I see it going, and we've got some, we've just had some money to help develop the use of situational judgment tests in a social care setting. And I think where I see it going is not just trying to select people based on these methods that might be able to measure these personal qualities, but actually then using them, what you might call formatively or to develop some of these interpersonal, social, emotional skills, particularly in areas like mental health, where so much of the patient experience and outcomes is determined by what goes on between a clinician and a patient. Or in my case, you know, as a child adolescent psychiatrist, what goes on in the family uh, and the consultation with parents and with the young person, as well as, you know, between the patient and the doctor. And Actually, using situational judgment tests, we can transform them into something called scenario-based learning, where you're actually using the social situations and giving people feedback to rapidly give them some experience of how you might best approach challenging interpersonal situations. So there's certainly a lot of interest, and I'm collaborating also with our Department of Education at York, who are very interested in getting newly qualified teachers skilled up Mm. in dealing with, because we all know teachers face Mm. challenging uh, behaviors that challenge sometimes in the classroom, right? Uh, as well as tensions and challenges with colleagues. You know, it's not just about, you know, and, and again, it could be situations where you're dealing with a colleague who's maybe speaking um, negatively about a patient or, you know, how do you, how do you challenge that in an effective way? So uh, what I'm interested in doing is taking some of these measurement principles and actually using them for staff development mm-hmm. um, to help improve these very vital interpersonal skills that generally have been quite neglected in many areas of healthcare. People just assume you've got them and you kind of learn them by watching other people. But we know there is some evidence that actually people might actually get worse uh, in terms of their values, uh, because if they see people doing things in a, a non, if you like, non-person-centered way on the ward, because they're, for example, nurses which we know are very busy, understaffed and pressured. And if they're seeing things not done in a very person-centered way, they might actually get worse in terms of those behaviors. And we know that's bad for patients, not just experience, but there's an increasing amount of evidence that the way clinicians are with patients in terms of showing compassion and the patient feeling that the the, the clinician understands them, these actually are, are increasingly shown to be linked with very real outcomes. And 
for example, whether patients take their medicine as prescribed or not is often determined by the way they feel about their, mm-hmm. their physician. So these are, these are so-called soft skills, but they're, they're, they're increasingly, we find they're linked to hard outcomes. Yeah, very, very much so. And actually interesting to hear that it potentially has wider implications. You mentioned how this could be used for teachers, mm-hmm. but, you know, could it be used more broadly across, uh, across other areas? Paul, before you go, I've been asking everyone about their experience coming to Stockholm as part of the fellowship. So I'd be, it'd be great to hear what it means for you and potentially might mean for your research as well. Well, I, I feel enormously privileged to be here and I, everybody's looked after us as, as though we were Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> and uh, it's it, I, I've just been really touched by how everyone's looked after us. And uh, it's been, of course, it's, it's a wonderful networking opportunity and to meet people who are at a similar career stage and working on different, but perhaps relevant aspects of clinical education research. So it's been a good opportunity to exchange ideas and perspectives, as well as make links that could lead to collaborative projects in the future. And it's very, obviously, the Karolinski Institute is the home of the Nobel Prize, of course, and it's very inspiring just to be around here in a, mm-hmm. in a place that's really aspired to medical excellence over the years. It started, I understand, as a, a very humble surgical hospital for, for military use. And it's now, you know, certainly in the top 10 for, for medical research. I mean, it's, it's very inspiring. So yeah, it's, it's really, it, it has been a privilege and inspiring and just an opportunity, like I say, to, to exchange ideas, uh, in a, in a safe and friendly environment and space. Paul, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Really lovely to meet you. And thank you to everybody at home for listening. And we'll be back with another episode of the KI Prime podcast very soon. For now, take care. Goodbye.